Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Edward, the head of software engineering at Grok, and they discuss how Edward came to be one of the most prominent members of the Haskell community, how Grok's chips are able to provide incredible processing capabilities for AI models, and how category theory gives us a different way to think about mathematics. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Um, I started uh, very young. I had an uncle who used to work for RCA back in the day. And um, so he was a telecom guy, um, or a television guy rather than a telecom guy. But uh, he, had, he had worked in the Air Force, um, like flown around from base to base playing chess with generals. That was how he like basically dodged the draft or like sidestepped going to Vietnam or what have you. Um, and then when I was like six or seven, he um, helped buy me my first computer. So I got start, like, I first started off on like his pet and then he got sick of me borrowing his pet. And so later on, he um, helped me get a big 20 and the Commodore 64. And I started in on, the, on those as my sort of like introductory platform, right? And um, along came the Commodore 128. And I thought that the CPM mode that you could boot into on the Commodore 128 was like the serious business way that people were supposed to program, but it was boring. It didn't have any programs for it. So I went and wrote a whole lot of software just by kind of porting things over from the Commodore 128, the Commodore 64 mode into the CPM mode for the Commodore and then sold a ton of shareware um, early on. and. Uh, when all my friends had paper routes and whatnot, I was able to just like, oh, I can just write some code this weekend and there'll be, you know, two, $3,000 or whatever. Um, it was like this money tree and my mother never really understood it. So that, that's how I got started was through that. Then into the bulletin board scene, I built a, then right as a Netscape Navigator ship, I built a um, anime import export business named otakuland.com. It's long since dead and has been. Uh, purchased by other people or whatever. Um, I was running that for a couple of years and then helped build a phone company. So the ISP that I had been working with was an ISP named Mish.com. They'd been, been hosting my anime import business. And I really got to know the the owner of the business pretty well. And so when this was around 1996 at this point, uh, this was right at the time that there was the last wave of breakup of Ma Bell where they were trying to like, like back in the day, Congress didn't believe, believe that monopolies were a bad idea. And they kept trying to, to break up anything that looked too big. They got away from that mindset recently, it seems. But uh, back then it was still uh, not considered uh, cool that when, you know, that, that, that Ma Bell was this gigantic monopoly. So they broke it up into lots of little monopolies by geographical region, which didn't do anything to actually serve the purposes. And then they kept trying to fix that by, making it so that if um, I'm a phone company and you're a phone company and I have calls terminating your, like, uh, like basically they kept trying to make foster a, a competitive local exchange carrier market. And it, they never really quite got it right. And so I was part of the, the crowd that realized that they could take advantage of that last wave of laws to foster the creation of like ISP um, like businesses, because if I'm getting paid by the call, the, the hour for the calls that terminated on my hardware and I'm an ISP and I only ever receive calls, then it's just free money. 
there was a whole wave of them at the time. So did that company make you a billionaire? No, I, um, I made and lost a lot of money. I, in the end, I lost a lot more money than I made. So I wound up crushingly in debt. And so I decided to do what um, everybody does when they're that deep in debt is add more in the form of student loans. Because I'd been a CEO or a CIO technically at that point for like seven years. And um, no one would believe that I would stay for anything entry level. And no one wanted a CTO without a formal education right in the dot-com crash. And I was completely stuck. I spent like a year on my now wife's couch um, just doing nothing. Uh, and then I said, okay, fine, I'll, I'll, um, I'll go back and fix this education slash work-life experience imbalance for me. And um, yeah, so I went and started and finished my undergrad in 2004. So I did a double bachelor's in math and computer science. The next semester I did a master's in math. The next semester I did a graduate certificate in AI, met all the requirements for a master's in bioinformatics, didn't take it, did a graduate certificate, met all the requirements for my master's in computer science, um, audited a master's in computational linguistics. And by the time I was done with that, it was three years later. And I had fixed my education imbalance, but I was um, really bored with the person that I had wanted to be before that, if that makes sense. Um, I had changed a fair bit in that time. And at the very end of that, I discovered this programming language called Haskell. It wasn't actually part of my curriculum in any way, shape, or form. It was just a community worth of folks that were doing very interesting things with the ways to, the way that they compile for uh, their programming languages. They had better theory than I did. I had been building, how to put this, when I started doing the phone company thing, I had been very active in a community called the demo scene, a bunch of graphics programmers who like to do flashy graphics um, kind of grew out of uh, the sort of uh, cracking scene for games. They would try to put little files in there that would be like, here's a little .com file that you'll actually execute that happens to scroll past some fancy greets to their friends and what have you. So I got very active in that community for a while. You know, I was wearing the, the sort of suit in, in the day and then coding frantically at night. And I kind of kept that um, cadence to my entire career. And it, how to put this? So when I found the Haskell community, I had been, um, I'd gone through this weird time of being completely self-taught, then having gone through a formal education very late. So I had like kind of two different perspectives and I came into Haskell with having been trying to build little toy programming languages that all looked like the bastard child of uh, C++ and Perl and Python and whatnot, because they were what I knew with a little bit of immutability thrown in. Like if I, if I can't mutate a thing, then I can share it across threads. I don't have to do any locking around it. There's a lot of extra benefits. And I had taken it so far, like I, I can move more of my, my, my calculations to compile time and what have you. But they had taken, like the Haskell community had really embraced this idea of like, what is immutability? What does it mean for everything that you learn in the undergraduate, like a computer, uh, an undergraduate computer science degree about amortization of algorithms and all this kind of stuff? And, and really pushed it in a new direction. And I kind of had to decide, do I like make their tricks my own or do I stick my head in the sand and pretend this never happened? You know, I never saw this. And um, I eventually just decided to sort of reinvent myself as a Haskell person. And it seems to have worked. So I had been, because of like the whole demo scene, like doing all my stuff, kind of like coding in the evenings, um, 
I had um, always logged into IRC or whatever is like under pseudonyms. And like, even when I first started doing that in the Haskell community. And, um, and so when I took all my fumbling missteps, it was all under like random nicknames and whatnot. And then I looked around the channel and I started getting more and more self-conscious about the fact that everyone there was like under their real names. So I eventually just like put down my real name and no one saw me take those fumbling missteps. I just sprang forth fully formed from the brow of Zeus knowing Haskell, right? And I don't know, about a year or two after that, they kept starting putting me in charge of more and more things. So that's how I got to the point where I'm at. I had, I had been trying to write reusable, like reusable code. It was, it was a sort of like this, this mission that I had had from when I was a little kid, right? Like transcoding all that code from the, the 6502 to the uh, Z80 for the, for the um, CPM mode for the Commodore. Like it was, it was really soul crushingly, depressingly boring to rewrite the same kind of code over and over again. Whereas all I really wanted to do was be able to build a, like a pile of code that I can keep standing on top of to build the next layer. And I kept feeling like whenever I would do that in OOP and other languages, I, that I was like building castles in sand and it was all kind of crumbling around me that I was like trying to climb up, but could never really get to that next level. I was just kind of failing for the structural material reasons. And, um, and Haskell seems to be, I mean, for reasons I did not anticipate when I found it, um, very good at letting me build reusable pieces of code that all interlock together. So now I maintain a ridiculous amount of code. Is that what was on schoolofhaskell.com? I saw you were you had a framework there. You said it was changed to like read only now. Oh, so School of Haskell is a site that was started by uh, FP Complete, which is a company that kind of came into the Haskell community and tried to be the commercial face of Haskell. And um, to some positive extent, and some some like didn't quite achieve all of their initial aims. Um, so School of Haskell was a website that they put up, which originally had a very interactive blogging framework where you could write Haskell code and it would run on the website. And so I did a bunch of, I did a bunch of tutorials on there. I, most of my original content is on an older website called comonad.com. Yeah. The, uh, they, they were just like one of, one of the places that I was, I was putting up content. It's really the, the short version of that, but I had been trying to write reusable libraries and I got to Haskell and I thought everyone in Haskell knew this branch of math called category theory. And I just assumed that it was like endemic to the culture. Because the one person that I was really seriously talking to Haskell about knew it. And then we were sitting in IRC and there were 300 people in the channel and they were all quiet. Um, and I just assumed that meant that they knew everything that this guy was talking about. I didn't realize he was, you know, 40 something years old living in his mom's basement, just reading papers all day. <laughs> and so I spent the next six months reading everything I could on category theory and learned it and started blogging or, uh, to an audience that I imagined existed. And it took a couple of years for it to show up, but then it did. And so now Haskell people are kind of known as the category theory people. Um, sort of the wish fulfillment seems to have worked out. I want to stop you right there. Okay. Because you did something that's interesting. You kind of glossed over it. You started doing this thing. It was very niche or niche, whatever word we're using. <laughs> um, and, and it didn't work out at first. You did it for several years and then it paid off. What was your mindset like going through those several years where there weren't a lot of people? Yeah. Um, so for me, like... I joined the Haskell community. It was like, it was the smartest group of people I've ever met on the internet. And I felt like a complete imposter the entire time that I was hanging out, talking to these people and trying to write down a bunch of category theory stuff um, and doing it poorly. And at the time, uh, so this was after I had finished that jaunt through education 
and I was doing defense contracting for a while in Boston. And then after I was doing defense contracting, I landed at Standard of Poor's and I was doing, um, like I helped them, I build a programming language for them that, that was used for financial reporting and whatnot, um, that's used inside of the way they do their portfolio evaluation and factor back testing engine. So when you said portfolio evaluation, it, oh, I did that for like three years. I had to build a back testing engine. You know, we <laughs> back tested market crashes and then showed how the portfolio would perform in these market crashes. And then we would do things like, um, it, how you would withdraw your money in the most tax advantageous way over the course of your retirement, because you're mm-hmm. taking a little bit from different accounts. And we had to model all of these different products, right? Because you get like annuities, you get all of these different types of income streams and products. And then it's like how you take what you need from the different streams in the best way. I don't know. It was it was like the nerdiest thing I've probably ever done. And it's weird because I go into those things and I would learn them and learn all the intricacies of them. And then I go to the next project. Like after that, it was like a fitness project. And I just, I've completely dropped like 90% of that knowledge. My brain just doesn't retain it. I will admit it's mostly gone from mine as well. I had, um, so I went and gave a talk at MIT on like reducing big data sets in parallel using very weak algebraic structures, groups and monoids and what have you. There were a couple of people in the audience from Standard & Poor's, uh, Paul Chiasano and um, Renard Bjarnason, who... Uh, had, had decided they were going to take my approach that I was describing in Haskell and re-implement it in Scala so they could use it on top of the Java backend that they were using for all of this uh, financial data processing at Standard and Force. And um, they, because they had to replace their existing portfolio evaluation and factor back testing engine and whatnot. And when they did so, it took them from taking all the memory on the biggest machines they could throw at the problems to using a, running on a constant amount of memory you know, with a tenth of the amount of code, it was more easily maintained. Like basically, no matter what metric you pick, it was on the Predo frontier. And it's they they brought me in once they got in kind of over their head as a consultant. And so I, I stuck around there for several years actually until I had a I had a cancer scare at the tail end of it. And they were very very nice about you know like oh like go do research and all this kind of stuff. But I, I really wanted to sink my teeth into a problem and. So I eventually left there to go work for a company called Digital Asset for a while, built another or worked on another programming language for them, the Digital Asset Modeling Language, which is used to run um, smart contracts on blockchain-like things. The major clients there are um, stock exchanges. So uh, the Hong Kong Exchange and the um, Australian Security Exchange are doing trials, as I understand it at the moment, of kind of switching out settlement. Um, so instead of like taking t- you know the time of transaction plus a couple of days of people shuffling things around in the back office. If you can turn around and settle it in five seconds, that's a huge amount of float removed from the market. Oh yeah. We've talked extensively about that on the show. We've had a number of different financial people come on um, from the creators of like different cryptocurrencies that are trying to solve that problem to different financial software companies. It was so fascinating to find out like if you do an international transfer, this concept of there's like hops between these multiple ancient technologies and they're taking little pieces of it each hop. It was like it, it seems absurd if you if you tell it to like a modern software engineer. <laughs> it really is. It, it's horrifying. Um, like if you if you if you were just do settlement for stock exchanges, I believe it's something like six hundred billion dollars worth of float um, that could be removed. Um, like to sort of narrow bid ask spreads and all that kind of stuff without the downsides of high frequency trading and trading and the like. Um, so digital asset, like 
got their foot in the door at the Australian Security Exchange, which is was the I think the largest exchange that was sort of co- like correctly had the correct mindset around how to that was positioned in uh, in a way that would actually like want to adopt new technologies in the space, like that didn't have incentives misaligned with that. Uh, so that's how that that's how that happened. And so after digital asset, I landed at an organization called MIRI, the Machine Intelligence Research Institute that does AI safety research. Um, if you've run into less wrong or rationalists on the internet, there's a whole halo slash um, around that that is fairly polarizing one way or the other. Their um, executive director had reached out to me um, when I was still doing, uh, still working for Digital Asset and asked me what it would take for me to like stop working for finance companies and to just work on the things that I believe need to exist in this world, you know, like to continue to do mostly in my open source work. And um, I gave him a number and he went away for six months and then eventually came back and said, okay. And like, I was, I was not expecting that to happen. It was more or less a go away, don't bother me kind of situation. And I had to kind of decide, well, do I carry on in the direction I'm going or do I uh, go off to California and do all of this? And I have to say that was probably the most rewarding experience that I've had in my career was sort of like this sort of blank check to do research and to sit there and interact with like a scarily smart group of people. So I was there for, I think, four years or so. And then this summer, we kind of, I mean... What happened was, while I was still there, um, I was approached by uh, Jonathan Ross. I, I believe Jonathan did an interview with you guys at one point. Oh, yeah. He's like alien level smart. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And um, so he not quite cold called me, but pretty darn near um, through a mutual friend of ours. And I, I spent a scary amount on compute last year just trying to do my own research. And the idea of like anything that would kind of help me mitigate that, like made it through the shields that I had up. So eventually he, he talked me into kind of coming on like a day a week to help them out, like understanding the finance space, the defense space. You know, they have a, they're, they're, they're reasonably heavily invested in Haskell as a technology stack. And I guess I'm the Haskell guy. Um, and so there, were, there was enough overlap there that, that got me like a foot in the door. Let's just say that, you know, due to the way that crypto went this year, um, I kind of transitioned from a place where maybe I shouldn't be uh, taking Miri's money. Maybe I should be donating to like Miri related causes and, and things in the effective altruism space. And um, right around the time I was kind of deciding to make that, that jump in my life, um, I talked to Jonathan and kind of decided to come on full time. And so he offered me a, a role at Grok as a fellow in the sort of Google fellow sense. And then I, I looked around at Grok and said, okay, well, if I'm going to like be here, like voting with my feet, mainly because one of the things I've been working on at Miri would had been like, how do I make functional programming, logic programming, formal methods scale? And the Grok hardware was like the closest thing I had found to being able to execute the things that I wanted to do at scale. Then maybe what I should do is like vote with my feet, join Grok, make those couple of changes, like a couple of small changes to the silicon or whatever that I feel need to exist for that to work. Um, because I'd gone as far as I could outside the tent. And so I joined Grok, looked around, realized that there were um, some places in the software stack that could use some attention and um, started trying to manage that a little bit from the side and then realized that it wasn't going to work until unless I just accepted the fact that I was going to have to run the software engineering side of Grok. And told Jonathan, I guess I'm going to do this. And now that's where I'm at. 
So that's a, a very long-winded path to get to get here, but that's um, most of <laughs> the, the sort of story of how I landed at Grant. Are you loving it? I really am. It's um, it's a very good culture. And I, and, I, and I know that like people say the word culture as like it's kind of a touch point. Like it's, a, you know, like, a, oh, yes, and we have a good culture or something. Um, in Grok's case, I think some of it is like, like almost everywhere I've been, there's a like a system of climbers or people who are just trying to clamber over each other and get to where they want to be with like as much head counter to them as they can get. And I think it's um, almost accidental. It's It's sort of like part of the teething pains that Grok had that it had to pass through this very narrow valley where they crushed down to like 35 employees. And almost almost ran out of money. Like all the people who were there with those kind of ambitions seem to have been kind of boiled off. And then since then, there's been a strong focus on sort of maintaining a healthy culture, which, like, given the, like the core nucle- nucleus that they were able to build, like, has actually seems to have worked. So I've been very impressed by that. Um, and I think Jonathan really leads that charge more than anyone at Rock. I'm excited about Grok. Like what you guys are doing with chips is, well, you want to explain it? I We went into this assuming because like I know so much about it. I've gotten to talk with Jonathan, but people who are just hearing this for the first time, can you explain what Grok is, what they do? Yeah, I can. Um, it's a little tr- tough given that I'm, I'm a very visual person and this is going to be a podcast. Um, so um, if I look at, um, there, the Grok chip is actually very visibly different than I think every uh, uh, pretty much anybody else who you're going to like label as a comparable just because they happen to be a, a tech company working on mostly machine learning models that have um, X many hundreds of millions of dollars invested in them at this point. Like most everybody else seems to be taking a huge pile of cores and stacking them on top of each other, like, and just sort of like taking, well, like, like a core is something like downtown Manhattan and let's tile Manhattans next to each other. And you can imagine like the sort of traffic congestion problems that you get. If you want to just sort of look at these sort of, emergent space of, of other of, of other um, offerings in the space um, where I would say that rock is the closest thing to a pure play that I know of. Like one of the things I was very interested in, in was how do I run functional code at scale? And the, the approach that I had started to evaluate uh, was to use techniques, something called SPMD on SIMD. Uh, the Intel SPMD program compiler is an example of that by Matt Farr, um, which it's more like compiling like shaders do, but for like a CPU. And then like you can keep extending that. If you look at AMD's graphics core next architecture, that has much of the same flavor to it. NVIDIA has a little bit less, but their warps are pretty close to that. And I, I kept looking in that direction. And if I look at the Grok chip, it's one gigantic sim, like SIMD unit. <laughs> it's... Um, you have like the matrix multiply units on either side of the chip. You have memory... In the middle, like in the middle, and at the very center, you have this sort of vector processing unit. There's like a couple of shuffle units and stuff like that in there. But the thing is, is that every operation is deterministic. It takes exactly the same amount of time every time you run it. There's no caches getting in the way. Like the all the memory in there is sort of like cache feed style memory. It's all SRAM. So since everything runs on a very like completely deterministic clock, we can do things like predict exactly how much power your model will take when it's run. Like during compilation, I can tell you how much it's going to take to to run your model. So if we take one of our chips and put it in an edge deployment scenario in like some kind of self-driving car and you want to put a capacitor nearby that's just large enough to draw the the charge for your big model, 
that you expect to have, like, have to have on very low latency infrequently. You can do that, which is a fairly unique point in the design space compared to all of our competitors who are all, here's a pile of regular chips who have their own L1 caches or whatever, and the, they're talking to everybody else around them. And so everybody, when you have lots of chips and they're all taking a variable amount of time to do a thing, well, if you, if the, to get the answer for the next layer, you need to basically have all the answers from the previous one, you wind up paying the worst case costs. So in any, any sort of variability there becomes that you pay the upper end of the range. And when we start looking at these bigger and bigger models, like let's say I want to do GPD-3 or GPD-NEO or whatever we just saw with Megatron or these, these other kind of models that have ridiculous numbers of parameters and you want to run those things at scale, if you want to be able to run those with any sort of decent amount of latency, being able to control that variance because we can lock it down to zero is pretty key, at least in my eyes. So I would say, go ahead. That sounds like you're giving them some certainty as far as the power consumption argument or the time to, to take it. Like that's it. I, I haven't, I don't think about this a lot, by the way, my, I'm usually higher up in the stack, but as you're describing this, I, it seems very chaotic to have a chain of chips all with variable timing and then trying to do something that's time sensitive. And then you have like the fact that like, really when you're using GPUs for this, there's just a lot of things that GPUs are really bad at. And we've kind of duct taped GPUs together to do machine learning because they can. Um, they're the closest thing to, to write, right? You know, TPUs came along, you know, Jonathan designed the initial version of those um, in his 20% time at Google, right? Back in the day. In a dialect of Haskell, no less, in Bluespec. There's a nice Can I use a Grok chip to, to mine some Bitcoin? Would that be advantageous or no? Um, in theory, that seems to work reasonably well. I don't have full numbers yet, but uh, crypto seems to... How to put this? We are... Better than an FPGA in a lot of spaces here. I don't know that we're, we're not going to beat dedicated ASICs or something. So they're out there. They're in use. They're in the wild. They're being sold. So if people like message me and they're like, Joel, I heard Grok, you guys talking to them. Can I buy some of their chips? I can just connect them with Jonathan or the team over there. Yeah. I mean, we have chips. We are currently, um, uh, how to put this, working, working on different strategies to, to get uh, customers access to chips easier than like having to buy them from us in bulk, right? Let's talk about people. Let's talk about people. Talk about is, people. Jonathan's a great human being, right? I, I really I'm sincerely him. enjoyed him. Yeah, I don't think you were there last time I talked to Jonathan, but like now you've come over. There's a bunch of other interesting people coming over. Tell me about those, those other cool people. Oh, gosh. Um, let's see. Um, so I, I recently joined... Um, I joined full-time this summer. Uh, I'm trying to think who is new. Um, because to me, they've almost always all been there, right? Um, we're just now, uh, Grok has this sort of notion of like, you know, mega hires, people that we should sort of chase after because they will like on their own sort of propel us to be an industry leader in some space, right? Uh, so I, I would say like the person that I'm, I, I am like personally most excited uh, to work with now is a, a guy named Satnam Singh. So Satnam uh, is actually the person who introduced me to Jonathan. Um, he did a lot of work um, at Google on the TPU and around like proving correctness of like various risk five system uh, work that they've been doing. So he's he's an, an old hat in the in the Haskell community, 
is the most um, Scottish Indian or most Indian Scotsman you'll ever meet um, simultaneously. And he's, I don't know, he, he is an absolute joy to work with. So if I have to say, like, who am I, who am I most excited, you know, like about that is, that is brand new to Grok, um, I would say Tottenham. Um, I also brought in Tim Sears with me from the Haskell community. Tim joins us. He used to run the machine learning team over at Target, actually. Uh, so he built a whole data science team in Haskell at Target, which kind of helped propel them to the point where, you know, Target knows that, you know, you're pregnant before you do that kind of level of... I was going to bring that up. I was like, is that him? Is that his doing? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, Tim, Tim's joined us and he's, um, I kind of view Tim as the other half of my brain. He is my grown up friend. He is the one who, um, when I'm trying to figure out how to frame something or to sort of speak to, to business, he is the, the, uh, the body that's supplies that input to me. Um, and I, and I, and I, it's one of those things where I've been looking for an excuse to work with Tim for many years, actually. Like he helped me get the, uh, the Topos Institute, uh, help us get this, the Topos Institute started, which is a institute devoted to category theory. It's a nonprofit that I'm still on the board of. And, uh, like he also helped get us the Haskell foundation off the, off the ground, another nonprofit that I'm, I'm active in. So like, we've been sort of dancing around working together for many years now. You, you've mentioned this category theory a couple of times now. Seems to be, mm-hmm. you know, what is it? Why should I? Why do people like? Why should we care about category theory? What does it do for us? Okay, so let, like you might have heard of set theory if you've heard a little bit about math. Like like if you start asking about like what is math made out of, people often go down and well at the very bottom you find sets and then you can you can build everything in math out of sets in set theory. Sets set theory is sort of like the study of the nouns of things. Like even like the way that you talk about functions and set theories, you just talk about the set of all the pairs of the inputs and the outputs of the function, right? Everything is in nouns. The way I like to think about category theory is category theory is sort of the study of relationships between things. It's the, um, it's the arrows between things. That's how things are connected rather than the nouns. It's more like the verbs. And you can go through and you can go back and, um, and sort of rebuild math on top of this verb-like structure rather than the noun-like structure that we had on, on the set, ther- set theory side. And I think it's a more informative way to talk about math, right? Set theory was like the first thing that people found that worked. It wasn't necessarily the best thing that they could have found. If, if they have to like, and I mean, I'm, I, I realize I'm, 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 I might be doing this a little bit of disservice by kind of trying to use more populist math terms than uh, like diving into objects and arrows and morphisms and functors and, and, adjunctions and con extensions and whatnot. But there's a, there's a whole um, language of this. Because once you start talking about, okay, well, I have, I have objects and the arrows between them, and then I have the arrows between the, uh, the, and then I can have arrows between my arrows, and you can kind of like grow like higher and higher dimensional structures like this. How to put this? In lots of areas of math, there's something like, what is the natural map between this and that? This was an old piece of like just vocabulary that was like floating around very heavily in the 30s. Okay. Um, and category theory was initially an attempt to sort of ro- make that rock solid, like to actually make that a rigorous statement. Like we can talk about the natural map between two groups or so- some other kinds of mathematical constructs. And it worked as a Rosetta Stone for a very large number of areas of math to let them understand each other and how to talk to each other. Right. If I, if I go through and I learn like, oh, that's a category. Okay. I can ask 
what are the initial, what's the initial object? What's the terminal object? You know, like, you know, what, what are the tensors? You know, is it a monoidal category or whatever? If it's, if I like learn about, I don't know, quantum computing one day and all I know about it is it's a symmetric monoidal category with some extra structure, then everything I know about symmetric monoidal categories transfers to, to working with quantum computers. Um, that's an example of something like, and symmetric monoidal categories have as their like internal language, the, the logic, the, the world of linear logic. And there's a whole area of philosophy and logic that I can bring to bear on quantum computing using category theory as a sort of bridge, as a translator between these two different approaches or these two different like sets of vocabulary. And I find that endlessly fascinating. I find that there's a, um, like the fact that I can sort of come into a new area of math and stomp around simply because I've gained a lot of faculty for working with these very broadly applicable category theory tools is really shockingly useful to me. Um, and then, you know, like if we look at computer science, there's really just nothing in the world of computer science that has that sort of pedigree. Think back to the 1930s. How much of like what was invented in the 1930s do you use day to day as a programmer? Well, as in math, category theory has been kicked around since like 1930, 1934, whatever. And it's like, continued to grow and like has been hammered on by basically every area of math. So it's not terribly surprising that computation is another area in which you can ask the same kind of questions you can ask about any other area of math and get useful answers out. And then like, as a mathematician, I might learn, oh, this is isomorphic to that. But as a computer scientist, well, I can actually learn that while well, these two things do the same thing, they have different asymptotic costs. One of them moves some of the costs to runtime, some of it moves it to like construction time. And maybe I can use those as rules of the game for how to optimize my code. And so I write a bunch of those things down. And then it turned out that a whole bunch of people were able to tell me a lot of things about the meaning of my own code that I didn't know, right? I believe very strongly in kind of using the right names for things because then like, if I'm kind of standing on the shoulders of giants or whatever, like I can, I can give you like the path I followed to get here, right? Cause you can Google for the words that I used, right? You can find papers. You can tell me stuff about my code that I don't know. I make up the names for everything. If everything's appendable or something weird that I made up and I pull the laws out of my butt, then nobody has any frame of reference unless they also happen to have seen that other thing and like fully know that literature well enough to transfer the results themselves. Whereas if I use the right terminology, they can go find it. And I don't want to like deny people, you know, up to 90 years worth of literature. Um, so that, that's sort of what category theory is to me, if that makes sense. What, 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 what are you personally excited about right now? Uh, what am I personally excited about? Um, so at the moment, I, like a lot of what I've been trying to do with Brock is get us to a point where I, I figure there's two, like the way I'm defining success for Grok personally is something like this. If I can get our tools to the point where I really want to use them, like it's not like I can use them to solve my problems, but I like when I go, oh man, I have an idea. And I go, the first thing I want to reach for is the Grok tool chain. I will, I, I feel like I'll have succeeded, right? And we're, we're so close. We're, we're very much on the path to that being the case with our code base today. Um, and that's, that's got me relatively excited. <laughs> um, the other thing, like, I'm really trying to get like organizationally, like how am I sort of defining success myself is sort of, I really would like to get to the point where like, I feel like if I took a day to do research, the company wouldn't fall around uh, part around me, which is a lot about like, how do I make my sort of self like replaceable in more situations? Like how do I, how do I make sure that the organization can survive without me? Like the exact opposite of how every company winds up with the one sysadmin in the corner who is the only person who can do his job. And so that person can never go on vacation and is miserable for the rest of their lives. But has job security, right? I would really like to get Grok to a point where I don't need to be the person in my seat, right? 
And I, and I, and I hate to say that, that that's the thing that has me excited is getting to a point where I don't need to do my job. Um, but it is very much a, um, a thing that gets me out of bed in the morning, right? You're speaking my language. I'm an entrepreneur. That's like, that's the goal. That's the point. The point is to build autonomous auto scaling systems that yield profit. And are, cause that means it's useful to other people. Cause the only way you can get money is by being useful to other people. Um, the only legal way you can get money is that way. And that that's what you want. You want this, you want to build something and watch it grow. Like I've got two small kids and I get the same satisfaction as like building autonomous business and watching it grow as I'm getting to like start watching my kids grow. It's like, I can't control them, but I can provide them in an environment that will be conducive to them having success. Just like a business. You can't like control every little thing, but you can put like the right people in the right places. Yeah. I'm, I'm very pleased with, I came, I came into Grok. Um, there were a couple of things where when I joined the, the software team where folks were kind of like throwing over the fence, what they thought each other needed. Um, but like not actually checking that that was actually the case. I mean, a lot of what I came in to do was more or less just make sure that there was an architecture in place, right? That, um, and then to deal with the messy parts of like a startup that is now like, well, sort of past the initial startup stage where, you know, well into like 180 people, like it's, it's getting to a point where it's like a reasonably healthy sized company, but it's not, but it's also not to the point where it's a gigantic matrix organization of, oh, you've got all the electrical engineers and the computer engineers and the software engineers on a bench and you can pull them into a project and let them go off and then grab the next bench, right? Like you would have in the defense space. We're somewhere in the middle. And from a management standpoint, that's a very interesting and challenging place to be, right? Because you, you, you know, we have the bones of a much larger company. We have a lot of people who have come in like the Intels of the world or from other like hardware vendors or from other big software companies. And like, they're very used to being able to do a completely product first um, approach to management. Like you, you sort of like sit down and you do the MRD and you step into the the PRD, you specify all the OKRs and you've got a, you've got a project and you're able to run it, right? you you now have the things you're going to hold everyone to accountable to, but almost all of like almost all of those sort of ignore the headcount, the depth of the bench that you have to have in order to be able to run a business entirely in that top-down driven manner, right? The the trade-offs of oh, I have to like trade this to do that are still a thing you feel at about 180 people. You know, you have to be about maybe six times, you know, five times larger before that really, before that sort of fully product-driven. MRD, PRD kind of approach really works. Um, and so a lot of what I've been trying to offer is sort of that, um, that mid-scale corporate perspective of like being somebody who's at that very uncomfortable uh, position of being at the intersection of, okay, here's what's technically possible. And here's what all, all the sort of corporate objectives and marketing and sales and product people want to build. So a lot of what I'm trying to offer Grok is that sort of um, pragmatic mindset or like someone in that seat who can try to see like a way to like steer through those rocks. Yeah. I like it. I, I like you. I like this conversation. I want to wrap it up with something kind of fun. All right. Uh, any recommendations on like good sci-fi content? You seem like a good person to ask for this. Oh gosh. <laughs> if you're but not, if I'm in left field, just tell me, but good sci-fi content, current yeah. sci-fi content, um, any, I mean, any content. I mean, I, I, I'm a big fan of a lot of Werner Vinge's work. Um, like it's now getting up fairly long in the tooth, but it's, you know, still a classic. Um, I've been reading a lot of, uh, I, I, I admit I've, I've kind of drifted away from sci-fi as my genre and have been reading lots of Chinese Xinxia and Wuxia novels lately. 
which are their own brand of crazy. So it's like Chinese fantasy with heavy Taoist elements and stuff. Like that's where most of my my reading has gone. And it's mostly awful. So I don't know that I can actually make positive recommendations in that space. I really just need to like stop. Do you read Chinese or is it translated? So I started, I actually did spend a a fair bit of time in the last couple of years uh, learning Mandarin. I'm terrible at it. It started out as a, um, I had been reading all these novels and then I ran out of things that were translated. And then I started trying to read the machine translations. And at that point now, I was getting to a point where it was frustrating enough that I started trying to read it myself. And then because Miri and the Center for Applied Rationality and all these different organizations are associated with all these effective altruism organizations, and those organizations were having a hard time getting inroads into China, I was like, well, I have the excuse, the fig leaf of, well, maybe I should learn Mandarin for these kind of kind of purposes. And I, you know, because I was getting invited to give talks to give talks in China and stuff like that before the the sort of state apocalypse kind of kept us all home. And so I, I, I went pretty, pretty hard down that road. And my sister lived over there before the, before the whole virus thing for several years. And she was trying to teach me like not the language itself or specific words, but the, the concepts of the language and how they do things differently compared to ours. And it seemed like vastly different, but it also seemed efficient in some ways and fairly interesting but I was curious, you're, you're pretty smart with machine learning and things of that nature. You know, there's the famous like GP3, you know, examples of like, you can put some stories in and then it'll spit some similar sounding stories out. My yep. question to you is, would that be just as effective in one language as it is another language? Like, is it agnostic to language or? The GPT-3 approach is pretty language agnostic. Like it doesn't have a sense of like sentence structure or anything like that. It's literally just a predict the next token in sequence uh, kind of engine. It's um, so yeah, that would that would work perfectly well in Mandarin or whatever if you have a large enough corpus to defeat it. So the the fluency and and I guess for lack of a better term, like the smoothness in which it reads. You know, there's you, we've watched the different models improve, like how they read smoother now, right? Like more natural language. And so is that smoothness similar in both languages? Because that's just fascinating to me. I mean, as far as I can tell, um, I have not seen um, a like a GPT three scaled um, model for Mandarin. Like I just haven't looked, but there should be no particular issues with it in terms of, I mean, other than having an internet scale database to, to feed it and, you know, the whatever, like, uh, you know, four and a half million dollars or whatever to train it. <laughs> After Grok, it's going to be like $2. I mean, well, no, well, yeah, we do need to get to a point where Grok is better, is, is suited to training. Um, we're, we're, we've mostly tar- targeted ourselves at the inference market, which is great because so many of our competitors went all in on training. And then once you've got the thing trained, now you have to deploy it somewhere. So in some ways we sort of lucked into a nice market segment for ourselves. Do you guys go into the area, like consider yourself somewhat of an, an energy company or, or use sort of like the incentives that the government offers for energy efficiency at all? Have you done any of that? Or have you thought about that? I, I would say like, Grok is is rather well positioned in, in in a couple of ways, but I don't think it's really from like I mean, we're we're very solid in power. As an example of like someone who I'm very um, happy to work with is we've got this guy Omar who did a lot of the work on getting Apple's M1, their original the power design for the Apple M1. Uh, as someone that I talk to fairly regularly on the team, and uh, Grok's positioning to me like speaks well to. If you look at say what's the what's the size of the competitor, right? Like the legacy, like the legacy competitor in this space is Nvidia, right? They're the, like they're the one that folks, you know, measure themselves against just because they're the six hundred pound gorilla in the room, 
right? You know, and they they pull what three hundred million, five hundred million dollars worth of revenue a year or something like that. You know, we're a a billion ish dollar you know a company. They're a few orders of my, uh, like they're significantly larger than us. And if we we don't need to win every battle, we need to find the niches that they don't have well defended, the places where they like because they have they have to be good at everything, and we have to be good at one thing. We can pick our battlefield. Right, we can pick what portion of their market we're going to turn around and nibble off and go after for ourselves. Like there are spaces where we're just 300x in terms of TCO or in terms of power. We should find and finish identifying those, and then knock those out of the park. Right, like just like just take ownership of that corner of the battlefield. At that point in time, like then the business changes in in a couple of years to well, now we have to remain sufficiently efficient that like no one else can come around and and, and take that segment from us. But it's a very I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a very target rich environment. It's a very, like, it's a, it's a great place to be at this stage of the company, right. Where we can sit here and, and, and call our shots one after another. And that's sort of where I've been getting excited about rock. Has the chip shortage, everyone's talking about the chip shortage in the media, right? Mm -hmm. You guys make your own chips. Is it the manufacturing of the chips or is it like farther downstream, the raw materials for the chips? Is that affecting you guys at all? We have been fairly fortunate, I would say, with regards to the, the way the chip shortage work. Like we, we have a very bright guy in charge of our sort of um, supply pipeline. And he went through and like he might have bought a few like parts in significant bulk to make sure that we wouldn't um, at, at, at a bit of a premium and to make sure that we wouldn't run afoul of sort of limits in this space. But I think we are good for demand for the midterm here, which means like we can go after business that was otherwise being bogged down by, well, their, their vendors just can't then. And it's been a, it's been a, a very surprisingly effective way to, to run a business is to be able to ship chips when your competitors can't. <laughs> I love it. I, I Well said. I saw recently that you had a press release about growth and being geoagnostic, right? Yeah. And there was, you know, there was a lot of strategic discussion around it, but the you know, the, a lot of time people think like, oh, the whole geo-agnostic thing, it's like, oh, you're, you're comfortable with remote work. And it's, you know, everybody's been comfortable with remote work even before the pandemic. It's been more about like, how do we support truly the initiative around work-life balance and, uh, you know, a scenario, a classic kind of old scenario, right? Is like, imagine you're an, this amazing engineer and you want to go work. You probably have to go to a major metro hub like Silicon Valley but your partner is a surgeon or a doctor that works at a hospital. So which one of you gives up your career? Right. And that's a, that's a classic story in the old brick and mortar model. So what we're recognizing now is if we want to meet talent where it stands, we don't, we actually help complement that work-life balance. Like, Hey, be where you need to be for your life. And, uh, and we're going to work with you on that. So we've got these amazing programs uh, Ed, Edward talked about, you know, the, the real nature of our culture. We've got this amazing director, Toby Crabtree, her and her team are spectacular about what they've done for keeping us all connected as, as remote workers. Um, but the policies that she's written has really been kind of groundbreaking. And that's why we put that press release out. I love it. I love it. And we'll just go ahead and credit the growth that you guys appearing on the podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. 
Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going. 